0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, We'll be looking at the first 16 verses here in just a moment. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here and we're in this lengthy series goes all the way back to November of 2016, uh, we began preaching through the life of Jesus, just taking our time and enjoying and just savoring the truth about who He was, what, revealed, what He reveals to us about His Father, about Himself, and then ultimately what we learn about ourselves in uh, submission to who He is. And we are in the final week for the uh, probably the last eight, nine weeks, we have been focusing in the final week of Jesus' ministry as He enters the Holy City for what we call Passion Week, where he will end up giving his life uh, for us. And we've been studying that. It's important for us to know that as we go forward uh, looking at this. Last week uh, on this stage, Michael DeFazio, Elijah Daly joined me, and the three of us had a dialogue, which we included you in, looking at Matthew chapter 24. Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. It's all a moment where the disciples said to Jesus, when they went by the temple, they said, isn't that an amazing, beautiful building? The temple was the center of their lives. It was where the presence of God came. It's where their sins were forgiven. It's where they worshiped him. It was the the cultural and, and spiritual center of all of Jerusalem. And they said, isn't that an amazing place? Because they thought Jesus would rule from that place. And they were asking him in their hearts questions like, is it going to happen now? How, how soon until you take over? And what will it be like when you are in charge and all these other people are gone? And when will we receive our reward? That was the background of their question. When they said, do you see that? When's it going to be ours? And Jesus said to them some uh, stark words. He said, it won't be. It's going to be torn down. And three days later, I'll rebuild it. But every stone will be knocked off of itself. There will be no stone standing on another. And what he was prophesying was that in 30, 35 years later, in 70 AD, Rome would circle the city for a four-year period of time and wipe out the temple, steal everything out of it and destroy it so that their spiritual center could no longer be Jerusalem. It would have to be Rome. And Jesus had forecast that, and we discussed that last week, what are the implications, how do we prepare our hearts for his return, because Jesus said, but don't worry, don't worry about other messiahs, don't worry about other things, I will come back and make everything right. And so in light of that, we're about to enter into Matthew chapter 26, where a phrase is used, and Jesus begins to show us who he is and remind us of why he's here. What I want to open with is this, Christianity is more than anything else, a demonstrated belief by his disciples in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, this may not shock you. You may say, I knew that. But I want to focus on the key words in there. Christianity is, more than anything else, a demonstrated belief, not a thought process. It'd be really easy today to hear what I'm about to teach from Matthew 26 and go, yep, knew it, knew it, and I knew it. And that's not the end game. The end game is not whether we know it. The end game is whether it's made a difference. Let me forecast where we're going to go with this. If at the end of this day that we worship Jesus together, you walk out of here and your thought is, Jesus was raised from the dead, yea, Jesus, you will have mistaken what we're talking about. What we need to understand in our everyday existence is not only was Jesus raised from the dead, but because of what he offers us, you and I can be raised from the dead too, yea, us. If Christianity is just a thought about what Jesus did on the cross, rather than a reality that alters our lives, we've misappropriated it. And I don't want us to. I want everyone, every single person here this morning, by your own choice, to walk out of here knowing there is a power available to you every day of the week that's Jesus and only Jesus. That's all you need. No matter what you face, that's all you need. This is the fourth time that Jesus will tell his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem to die in the book of Matthew. He says it in Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew chapter 20. He calls out that he is going to Jerusalem and they will take his life from him. But he also tells them that he will give it to them to take. He says, we prepare to understand Jesus, understand this again. Christianity can be nothing more than the demonstrated belief In the death, burial, and resurrection of who he is. I'd like to give you an understanding of that by showing you three perspectives on the cross. Three ways to look at the cross and all of them point back to God. So Let's begin with the first one. The cross from the perspective of sovereign grace. So the cross from the perspective of God's grace. Now, sovereign grace is not a term we use every day, probably never Sovereign means control and power. We believe that he is sovereign God. He is in control of everything. And I'm about to demonstrate to you that he was in control of even more things than many of us think about when we think about the cross. I want to to kill the myth that the cross happened to Jesus. And instead, I want to instill in all of our hearts that the cross was caused by God. And there's a difference between those two positions. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. When Jesus had finished saying all these things he said about the temple and the parables about the temple, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Fourth time, he has said this. But what he's pointing out is that everything that God said would happen, would happen, because God was orchestrating this. The plan of God all the way back to Genesis 3 is in place. The rejection by the Jewish leaders the rejection by the Jewish nation, the disciples who would follow Jesus to his death, and the one disciple who would betray him. All of these things are found in the Old Testament, and all of these things occurred as God willed them to. In fact, Jesus would tell his disciples, I know what the Father reveals to me. In other words, by coming to earth in human form, Jesus gave up some of the privileges of being God God. He gave up his foreknowledge so that God could instruct him day by day and lead him and show us how to be submissive to God and his Holy Spirit. And he knows this is the Father's time. Again, they didn't do this to Jesus. God caused it and Jesus allowed it. Jesus was on a divine timetable. And listen to John ten eighteen. Jesus would say to his disciples, No man takes my life from me, rather I lay it down of myself. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. No man takes my life from me. Clear. It's kind of a manly thing there, isn't it? Jesus is like, oh, no, I ain't playing. I let this happen because my father asked me to. And all along, Jesus has been faced with death. This isn't a new thing during Passion Week. From his beginning, Herod wanted him killed. Joseph took his family to Egypt. And hid him in Egypt. And then they came, I want you to notice if you maybe heard this story before, then they came out of Egypt across the wilderness to the promised land and would deliver life to all people. Sounds like the exodus, doesn't it? Jesus lived out his own exodus. Exodus. And he has been facing death his entire... He goes home to his city of Nazareth, and he says that the, the word has been fulfilled in your presence. He's saying, I am the one God promised to send. They took him to the edge of a cliff and tried to push him off. Now, if they could get him to the edge of the cliff, how come they couldn't push him off? I don't know, except now I do. It wasn't God's timing. And God protected him in that moment. You see, God is orchestrating every little bit of that. Even the parts of our lives we don't like. God has a purpose bigger than whether we like it or not. And so you have this moment that Jesus has been facing death from the very, very beginning. And we're going to read here in just a moment in our text that the Jews did not want to have Jesus killed during the Passover week. You see, on Sunday of this week, Jesus had come into the holy city and the crowd was calling out, there he is, there he is. That's the promised one. That's the anointed one. That's the king. That's King Jesus. And the crowd was all about Jesus. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, knew... We can't take him now. The crowd will rebel. And if the crowd riots to protect Jesus, then Rome's going to say, what's going on in Jerusalem? And they're going to find out there are riots and they're going to say, who caused this? And the crowd's going to point at the religious leader saying, they tried to take our king. And the Pharisees thought, now, I can't do it this week. We'll have to wait. But we're going to figure out how to get him. Isn't it funny that his entire ministry, people have wanted to kill Jesus and they couldn't. And yet on the week they don't want to kill him, they do. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? God's got his hands all over this thing. And if you ever wonder if God's involved in your everyday life, I just want you to pay attention this morning. The sovereign grace of God is available to all of us because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, God knew that on the week of the Passover, when hundreds of thousands of lambs would be slaughtered to temporarily stall sin, God would send the Lamb of God to die once and for all for all men and women's sins. Peter who didn't understand what Jesus was doing. It's clear from the text. He wasn't stupid. He, wasn't, he just wasn't putting it all together. He, he, he lacked the faith. He lacked something to, to comprehend what Jesus was doing. Later, following the resurrection, his life demonstrated a belief. And this is what he wrote to the church. We were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from our former manner of life, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot. And blemish. Later, Peter would go, oh, Passover week, oh, I get it. In God's perfect timing, he brought about, even through the people that were against him, he brought about his perfect will. He still does that today. So the cross from the perspective of sovereign grace is an amazing testimony to the God we serve. Secondly, the cross from the perspective of hateful rejection. And we're going to focus particularly on one man who led, he's not solely responsible, but he's indicated here by Matthew as the leader of this. His name's Caiaphas. Look at verses three through five with me. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him, but not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Now, Caiaphas is, now, uh, this gets complicated, and maybe I ride the horse too far and and you don't care, but let me tell you some facts. There is supposed to be a high priest. Caiaphas is one of the two high priests. There's no two high priests in the rules. This shows you the depth of what they would do to retain power, that they had Annas, who was also serving as a high priest, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, there's a marriage made in politics. And he married Annas' daughter so he could become, because you had to have connections to Rome to be named the high priest under their rule. So we have two high priests, which means we have no high priest. And since there's no king of Israel, the high priest would serve as the functionary of this. And Caiaphas gets them together and begins a plot. I love what Matthew records here, in a sly way. In other words, we want what we want. We just don't want anybody to know we want it. We're going to do this against Jesus, but we don't want there to be any tracks coming back on us. So what we're going to do is we're going to figure out a way to arrest him, and then we're going to take him and go up to Rome and say to Rome, he thinks he's king, and then it's Caesar's issue, not mine. You with me? Even if you're not, shake your head and humor me. You with me? Okay. So you've got all these subplots. Now, I really blew this last hour because I was trying all week long to think, how could we equate it in our culture today to the shock and horror of the Jewish people to find out that their priests... We're doing what they were doing. And the only way I could say, and I blew it last hour, but this hour, let me see if I can get it right. That would be finding out that the Surgeon General, I said Attorney General last hour, that's why they went, huh? If the Surgeon General's number one portfolio for his stocks were in tobacco, would you stop and go, that seems contradictory to what he knows to be true? No? This is a chain-smoking church? I don't get it. What's going on here? I thought it was brilliant. All right, we'll pray about that later. Okay, so anyway, don't send me emails. Okay, so if you found out the Surgeon General was investing in something that was damaging to health, you would question whether he's a good or she's a good Surgeon General. If you have a high priest who's trying to kill the Messiah, he knows to be the Messiah, you should have a problem with the high priest. I used to believe growing up because I want to believe that everyone's good until they prove they're not. I used to believe that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were mistaken or confused or or slightly off balance, and yet I find out that, no, that's not true, Mark. The Bible says they were hard-hearted against God. They weren't mistaken. They were against God completely. Let me show you why I believe that. In Isaiah chapter 28, the Old Testament prophet, hundreds of years before this moment, would proclaim this by God's leading. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the grave, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we, are, we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. Hundreds of years before the moment, God said, the religious leaders will hide behind a lie to protect their power. They will not honor him. They will not honor his ways. They will not honor his sovereignty. They will do whatever it takes. On that Sunday, when Jesus rode into the holy city and the crowd said, you're the Messiah, you're the Messiah, Caiaphas went, "Uh uh-oh, I thought I was in charge. What will become of me if Jesus is made king? I I will have no role. I will have no place. Rome will move away from me. I, I will lose everything. And that's the truth of following Jesus. If he's not worth your everything, you will fight him desperately, and can even develop a hatred toward his lordship. And then I wonder, why is Annas even involved in the stories as we go forward? And then I realized something in my research. And it was interesting to me. When Jesus went in on Monday and he cleansed the temple, Josephus tells us he went into a place called the Bazaar of Annas. He went into annas's business and called it out publicly and said it's corrupt and it's illegal and jews should stay away from this and so now you know why annas and caiaphas got together gathered a crowd and said this stuff's gotta end even though we don't want to do it in this crowd let's figure out a way to get it done while we could get a hold of him and let's get it done without anybody being able to track it back to us little did they know and they should have that god called them out centuries before Have I told you yet? God's got his hands all over this. The cross isn't something the world did to Jesus. The cross is something God caused to occur for you and me. You see, all of this comes to show us the sovereign grace of God, the hateful rejection of God's people, and thirdly, the cross from the perspective of betraying hypocrisy. Let's get a little bit closer to Jesus. Caiaphas is a long ways away. God is right there, and then there are the disciples. Look at verses 6 through 13 with me. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man named known as Simon the leper, a, man came, a woman came to him rather with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will have with you always, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now let me step away from the sermon for a second. As the preacher here regularly, I'm hoping some of you, I'm hoping at least two of you, think to yourself right now, didn't we cover this a few weeks ago? I'm hoping you remember and you're like, wait, did Mark get the chronology wrong? Did he forget? Is he, is he that old? Possibly. What I want to show you is John records this. And John says in his account of this moment, something specific. He says six days before the Passover, which would have been Saturday night. Matthew adds it here. And I wonder why does John tell us it happened on Saturday night and Matthew puts it here. And I believe the solution to the difficulty is Matthew is showing us why Judas did what Judas did. the the betrayal and the hypocrisy of Judas. So John tells us it's Mary. John tells us Judas was the one who was upset that she wasted all of that money on this moment. Matthew tells us that Mary knew, because she'd heard him now for the fourth time say that he was going to die, that Mary started to prepare him for burial. She came in that night realizing that he would not come out of the city. I don't believe Mary knew about the resurrection. I don't believe she understood it. She heard about it, but even her, her response on Easter morning when the tomb is empty leads me to believe she didn't have it all figured out, which really makes me love Mary more. For her to do what she did for Jesus that Saturday night, knowing how disappointed she was in her heart, knowing he would die and she would lose the one she loved, is an amazing act of love, an amazing sacrifice. So let me teach you this. When you know who Jesus is and you love him, generosity is a natural byproduct. It doesn't have to be coerced. Nobody told Mary to do this. She chose to do it. She wanted to honor and love Jesus. John tells us that Judas was the one who kept the money. You see, Jesus had no home. He had no business. He only had the clothes on his back on the day they killed him. It's all he possessed was his own physical properties that he carried with him. And so people were generous toward Jesus because they believed in what he was doing and the hope that he was offering. And they were giving him money to to eat when he went to the next town, to have money to buy things and to, to take care of himself. And so with all of that, we're told that Judas was the one who kept the money. And listen, when I mean kept the money, I mean kept the money. He was the accountant, if you will, but he cheated Jesus all the time. So Judas sees this woman lavishly and generously giving her best to Jesus. And he's ticked that he's not getting a cut, because he always took a cut. And he tries to stop it by saying, this is a waste of money. That could be given to the poor. And Jesus dismisses his claim because he knows Judas' heart. And we have this moment, this dichotomy of a woman lavishly loving and being generous toward jesus and his ministry and you have another person who's angry and upset because he can't use jesus for his own purposes you know where i'm going with this right the cross will expose which one we are whether we love jesus with generosity and i just don't mean cash i mean our whole being or whether we're using jesus to get something Because it's really easy for us to love the cross because it forgives our sins and not love the man who did the cross for us. And so you have this whole dichotomy in front of you, this moment in time. And what takes place then, look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. I've always wondered why Judas did what he did, and I'm not sure I know all of it, but I do know this part of it. I think Judas believed that Jesus was going to die in Jerusalem, so he monetized him. He went to the chief priest and he said, he keeps telling me, you guys are going to take his life. The gravy train just dried up. I need to get something for this. So if, he's, if you're going to kill him anyway, I'm going to work a backdoor deal where I get paid. I'm going I'm to make it easy for you. If he says this is going to happen, everything else he says is going to happen to happen. So why isn't this going to happen? I don't know if that's in Judas's heart, but it sure makes sense that on Saturday night, when Jesus cut him off from the funding, that Judas decided in that moment, well, I'm going to make some money off this. This is what I've done the whole time. I have faked my way as a disciple. So he goes to them. He negotiates 30 pieces of silver. Exodus chapter 21 tells us something clear. And I want you to notice Have you noticed that every single point this morning has been a reference back to what the Old Testament promised? I am fearful today of this new trend that you can hear in pulpits and in books and in famous popular speakers that we don't need to know the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. That is pure and simply false teaching. We have no clue what Jesus is talking about unless we know the God of the Old Testament and the promises made all the way back to the beginning. Now, I'm not angry that it's being said, I'm just angry that we believe it. And notice that what Jesus is doing is simply living out the Old Testament promises us. And we need to hold on to these. Because Isaiah said how the Pharisees would act, and I, I want you to see here how Judas would act. It's found in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Hundreds of years before the moment, God forecast his fingers are all over this thing, that this is what's going to take place. Listen to it. And I said unto them, if you think good, give me my hire, and if not, forbear. In other words, I will present myself, you choose whether you pick me or not. So they waited, so they weighed for my hire thirty pieces of silver, and Jehovah said unto me, Cast it onto the potter, the goodly price that I have prized at by them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and I cast them onto the potter in the house of Jehovah. Seems a strange text, doesn't it? Well, let me tell you what happened. Judas left and he went to the high priest, and he bartered to trade Jesus in. And they offered him thirty pieces of silver, which according to Exodus 21 was the price of a slave. And Then Judas, realizing what he had done after he saw the brutal treatment of Jesus and how he had betrayed Jesus, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, he throws the money back at them and he says, take the money, I want nothing to do with it. And the religious leaders are so pompous and hypocritical, they're like, oh no, we can't touch that money now, it's blood money. Oh, you can pay a man to be killed, but you can't accept the money back that was spent on this. How ridiculous we justify our behavior. And they throw the money on the ground before the. And Judas goes out and takes care of himself in the worst moment ever. And they decide to buy this thing called a potter's field. Just like Zachariah said they would. They would listen to what he's promised. They would haggle over the price, it would be silver. The price would be the price of a servant. They would devalue God and choose not to follow him. And the blood money would be returned in the house of the Lord, and it would buy a potter's field. Just like God said would happen, it happened. You see, the cross is not an accident. The cross was the way in which the Lamb of God would be offered for the sins of the world. It would show the sovereign grace of God. It would show the hateful rejection of people who cannot bow to his lordship. And it would show the betraying hypocrisy of some disciples who are good with Jesus as long as he's good to them. So how are we to face this? There's three postures we can take. The first is hateful rejection, and I know there's not a person in this room right now who's sitting here going, I hate Jesus. But let me offer you this. It's really easy in human nature to hate the lordship of Jesus. And this is what we're talking about. Is he or is he not the Son of the Living God? And is he or is he not smarter and more able and more wise than any of us together in all of our conventional wisdom? Is he not the creator of the universe? And will he not one day sit in judgment over each and every person's hearts, not just their actions, but why they chose to do what they do? He came to this group of people to save us, and we hated him because he asked us to bow in submission to his wisdom. I was thinking this week, I make the dreadful mistake of getting on Twitter every now and then because I don't like to go to the news channels on the internet. So if I can go to Twitter, the people I follow, give me what happened while I was at work. And it just is driving me crazy. Is it you that we don't even live in a culture anymore where we can disagree with one another? It is now offensive not just to disagree, but you can't even state your your opinion if it disagrees with somebody else. They don't want you to not believe what you believe. They want you to never say it out loud. And I'm here to say this: you better stand for your convictions if God is the one who convicted you. And the Lordship of Jesus will put us at odds with culture. They will think we're bigoted and narrow-minded And there will be even times in Scripture Moments in Scripture where you don't understand Why God says it is this way It is not ignorant to trust God When you know God I'm not asking you to blindly Follow a book you occasionally read But don't Reject the lordship of Jesus in any Layer of your life Because if you do you'll try to remove Him just like his Religious leaders did And the second group are those that are pretending to follow. And I know this is as offensive. If you think that was political, this is personal. You see, we pretend to follow. Judas was there for three years. He saw the miracles. He saw the blessing. He heard the teaching and he knew it was true. But at the end of the day, Jesus disappointed him in some fashion. Jesus didn't meet his agenda, didn't meet his idea. He couldn't use Jesus anymore, so he used Jesus one more time. And it is so simple for us to pretend as disciples, to give Jesus our Sunday morning, as long as we don't have anything else to do. And then Monday through Saturday, yeah, I'll just make it on my own and then I'll come back on Sunday and see how we are. No, that's pretending. It's hypocritical. He says, come and die, not come and worship. We have to die to self to live to him. Judas knew all the facts. He had all the convincing evidence He just never truly gave his heart and soul to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then there's one person who appears in this story for a moment, but she's beautiful. It's Mary. Mary was disappointed Jesus was going to die. Mary wanted nothing like that for him. Mary wanted him to stay. Mary wanted him to continue to perform miracles. And Jesus looked at her and he said, I can't and I won't. I'm going to go and I'm going to die. And instead of her fighting against Jesus, she bows in worship. She washes his head with this anointing oil. She washes his feet. She anoints his whole body. She sets herself apart from everybody in the room. She's criticized. She's ostracized. And she worships Jesus with passionate love. That's what he's calling us to do today. Christianity is at its very best when the followers live out and demonstrate what the death, burial, and resurrection means to them. Some of us here this morning, I want to talk to believers. I want to talk to those of us who at one point in our life took a knee before King Jesus and offered our lives to him for the rest of our lives in loyalty. How are we doing with that? Because I believe today's the day to realize that God's hand is all over the cross and it remains there. And that man who went to the cross to die for us went as our Passover lamb, and he deserves our loyalty and our allegiance completely. And so maybe this morning the answer for those of us that are believers is to repent, repent, of our weekly rebellion when we walk out of here and say, now back to my life. No, no, we gave our life to him. When we walk out of here, we walk into his life, his power, his authority, his death, his burial, his resurrection. It's not just, "yea, Jesus, it's "yea, us. And maybe some of us this morning, I don't know, need to say to God, I'm sorry. I need to get back in this. You're more important than anything I've traded you for. Restore your heart. Restore your vows. He's waiting. And then for others in the room who have never been believers, you're really weirded out right now, aren't you? You're like, well, that guy's spitting all over the place, getting passionate and calling for something. You bet. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus is the real deal. And he always will be. And what that man did on the cross didn't happen just 2,000 years ago it happens every day that someone professes belief in him allows the blood of that cross to wash away their sins so they can walk out of the tomb one day resurrected and whole in Jesus we'd love to offer you that this morning what does that mean? It means around this room are four tables that lamps are lit you can see them if you look there's one near you maybe you're a believer who wants to restore your walk with Jesus maybe you want someone to pray with you we'd love to do that Maybe you're someone who's like, yeah, I, I know enough about Jesus that I'm willing to follow him. I'm willing to trust him by faith. And we'd ask you to just go to the table and have a conversation with one of us. We'll start a conversation, no high pressure. But we would be evil in our hearts and hateful if we did not say this morning, every single one of us, the cross is for you. Will you receive it? Because that's why he gave it. As we stand right now and sing these few songs, let's remember who we're singing to. He's the real deal. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.